but I also give love deeply, even when people hurt me, even when they hurt other people. Love is still available because their way is not the way. Love is the way. And I will not let them change my motivator. I will not let them change my reason for resisting. I will not. Hi, I'm Jessica Minhas and welcome to Algo First. Fahisha Hassan joins us and y'all, this episode was so, so, so inspiring. She is a theologian, a mental health counselor, a professor, and the director of Transform Network, which mobilizes faith communities for social justice organizing. Fahisha talks about how she found her faith, race, knowing who we are and owning it, and fighting for the freedom of ourselves, but also on the behalf of others. We laughed, we cried. <laughs> Fahisha is just, wow. I cannot wait for you to hear it. Let's get started. So you're calling in from Nashville, Tennessee. Nashville, Tennessee, correct. I've and been you here just a whole moved month. there a whole month. A whole so you and I met, I guess I stalked you online because I saw the work that you were doing with the Transform Network. And I was like, I have to have this woman come on oh, and share amazing. her story and all of the important work that you're doing for communities and for, for the world right now, everything that's happening in the world. Uh, for those of you listening, we're currently recording this kind of in the middle of COVID pandemic and then also in the middle of um, racial unrest here in the United States. So it's, it's been kind of a year for 2020. It's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. So we had a chance to connect prior to us actually sitting down. And one of my favorite stories of yours is the story of how you got your name. Do you mind sharing a little bit about, about that? Because I was so struck struck by that. You're obviously working in the Christian faith community and your last name is, we said Bengali, right? Arabic. Arabic. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Mind. Do I, now my mom at this point minds because I tell everyone and it includes her being on a potty. So she's like, oh my gosh, Fahisha. Uh, but yes, I don't, I don't mind sharing my name story at all. It's one of my favorites. So my full name is Bahisha Nabiha Hassan. All three names are Arabic in origin. And my mom uh, was houseless when she was pregnant with me. And she, yes. And so she, she didn't have a home of her own, a key of her own. And so she was staying with compassionate friends and folks. She had left a volatile marriage where she had to move states over just to escape this situation. And so she finds herself pregnant with me, not by the ex-husband. And so she's sitting on a potty, like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? She's crying. She's like, I don't have a home of my own. What am I going to do? Can you imagine? Hello? Like, that's, it's a predicament. These are these real life moments, right? Yeah. These, piv- these pivotal places. And so well within, you know, her means and agency to have an abortion. And that is clearly acceptable in my opinion and um, my, my perspective, faith and all. And, and, but she was, so she was wrestling with that. And so she's sitting on this potty and she's like crying and she's talking to God and she had never really considered herself religious or even hyper spiritual at that point. 
And she said she was crying and she said, God, what could I possibly give to a child? I have nothing of my own even. What could I possibly give a child? And she said she heard the voice of God say, give her life. And in that moment, she said that she knew that I was going to be a girl. She knew she was going to have a daughter. And so she named me Life. So Vahisha means life in Arabic. Uh, Nabiha means noble prophet. And then Hassan means to make things better. And she even in that moment changed her last name to Hassan so that we would both have the same names in the world. And she said that my life was going to make her life better. And then my life was going to make life better in the world. And so we're the only two Hassans in the family. Wow. And I think that is so true to the nature and the work that you're doing right now. Basically. So, yeah. when I, when I, so when I tell those, that story, that, that narrative of my life in these different settings, they're like, wow, how did your mom know all this long time ago? And I was like, right. well, her, her and God had this situation figured out. So here we are. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. I, I, I do attempt to speak life. And that's what she always said to me as a young person. Did you speak life today, Vahisha? And so I speak life and I consider faith to be a life language and not to be wielded and weaponized in a way to oppress and really kill people's spirits and kill people's uh, goals and purposes. And uh, I see us all as created in this beautiful image of a God creator. So I speak life in those ways out of a faith perspective, a uh, noble prophet, listen, I'm all about some liberation. Okay. So okay. freedom, is, freedom, yes. <laughs> yes, freedom and liberation and both resisting and fighting for freedom and liberation, but also leaning in and living in the liberation that we seek. So how do I live free right now, even as I wrestle with freedoms that have yet to come? I mean, like, how do you do that? Because <laughs> one listen, of, your, very, very one of carefully. your quotes, you call it liberation theology. Well, I don't, but James Cone, right? Oh, that's <laughs> like a thing. Oh, it's a whole thing. It's a whole wow. field of theological study. And so there are many founding theologians in Black liberation theology. You can go get a full seminary degree path. There are so How many folks I never that heard you can this? read. Because I would never <laughs> think when I look at conservative evangelical Christians, right now, for those of you listening, we're in the middle of an election cycle mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. we're seeing a lot of. I mean, I would not think of Christianity as a liberation theology or how it's married to Black Lives Matter and just the mess that we're in right now. They would never occur. How have I not heard about this? That's intentional. So the same way that oppressive systems are set up and designed to oppress in the ways that we see in the world, then there are systemic ways that Christianity and historically is set up to do the exact same thing. I mean, I went to seminary and never heard of liberation theology. Now I heard of yeah. James Cone, I've heard of Reverend Dr. James Cone, but the only framework I heard about him was a style of black preaching, not the actual content, not the exegetical work of what he was bringing to the scriptures. So you don't hear that, that's, that's intentional. I mean, it's set up this way. And, uh, and even to the extent that conservative Christianity, some of these denominations are putting things on the books now that they are wanting to remove what they call the social gospel. So they're even trying to separate it. Like there are different aspects of this gospel lane. That is so wild to me because a lot of what you talk about is this liberation component. And when I think of movements like MLK and all of that, I feel like faith was a movement. 
Faith is a movement. Faith is a part of all of those. I mean, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., a key component of his work and his life and his framework, and, and lots of other folks that have done so, so much. And it is disturbing, right? It is disturbing that this is trying to ex be extricated, be removed from, I mean, you, you said that this is how you came uh, into my work. That's how I came to Jesus's work. My introduction to Jesus was as this liberating Jesus. That's the only Jesus that I knew. I had to go learn about this very interesting other pacifist only sanitized only concept of Jesus later and I equate that similarly I'm not making MLK Jesus what I am saying is you think of the way that MLK's legacy has been sanitized so they removed MLK from being a radicalized black man yeah, in an oppressive yeah. white America Sanitized. they changed yeah totally changed that yeah, narrative right yeah, yeah. If, if 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 he wasn't so so radical he wouldn't have been murdered same for Jesus. Jesus was murdered by the state. Like, let's be clear. This was a yeah. state-sanctioned public execution, a lynching, if you will, of a brown man because he went up against- That's real. Hello, because he went up against uh, the religious leaders of the time who were doing religion in the way that you're describing, like conservative evangelical uh, Christianity, and went against the state. And, and he was a threat. Jesus yeah. was a threat. MLK was a threat. Malcolm Ooh, X was a so threat. Oh, true. Oh my these, gosh. These people were threats. Wow. I am a threat. Resistance is a threat. The strive for liberation is a threat because it leaves wide open a space for everyone. And when rugged individualistic Western concepts say that you have to retain all the resources, that there's not enough for everyone, and community is seen as some possession as opposed to a gift, as opposed to a collective source of power and love, then this is what you get. But we, but we reject all notions of that. So I reject a sanitized Jesus. I reject a sanitized MLK. I reject a seminary where you've never heard of uh, Dr. Cohn. I've had to learn so much and had to unlearn. And I think that's where we all kind of are. There's well, a, there's a like, nationwide, nationwide learning and unlearning happening. One part of your story that I find so interesting, there's so many points, but <laughs> there are so many oxymorons in your life. Like the fact that you're a black woman in, in United States Christianity in a time right now, that, that is an oxymoron to me. And also how you came into faith. Your mom didn't grow up in a faith household. She came to it when on that potty, when she, hello, when she, potty, she, faith. potty faith. Yeah. So much can happen in the bathroom. Epiphanies yes, during the shower, like so much, mm -hmm. but she really told you to go out and find your faith. So you did get the chance to explore Islam and all of that. And so like, I did. Why? I mean, and not, and not just a, not just a theoretical expo exploration, right? Like I was in mosques and I was in Buddhist temples and I was in Catholic churches and I was in black Southern churches. And I was in these spaces with these heartbeats who were actually practicing their faith, not just talking about it, not just reading about it in a book. I chose the Baha'i faith initially. And that's where I learned what love meant, what love was all about. I mean, it was so much community, so much of that was ingrained. And so what I brought to Christianity was myself. Why did you choose it though? I mean, you were in the Baha'i faith. Why, why this? I mean, one thing that you've talked about in one of your interviews that 
I um, loved, you said specifically as a black person, why would I choose this faith of oppression that was deeply involved in oppressing black people historically and currently? Historically and currently. Yes. Is because there is a, both a black radical tradition of Christianity, but there is also just a deep DNA passed down stream of faith that came through black faith in a Christian concept as resistance work. I mean, like, seriously, like it was, if you, if you, if you look at some of the history, even though I understand that Christianity was weaponized and tried to use to placate um, enslaved uh, peoples, but because one of the laws was that black, black enslaved people could not learn how to read. So just look at that. Part of what they did not want them to learn how to read was the Bible because there was liberation available in the Bible. They didn't want these black people to know about no Exodus story. They didn't want to know about Moses and Pharaoh and to let my people go. They didn't want them to read all of that, but they allowed uh, black male like clergy or, or preachers to become preachers and read limited amounts of the text. I was just, just asking about yeah, that. Just yeah. enough. Just yeah. enough to preach to the, 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 the aspects of be good to your slave master, to love and care yeah. and be grateful for this salvation that has come by the way of slavery. So even those, if you do some deep exegetical work of what was going on at the times that these things were said, that there are issues and, and with all of that. But that peace is what was given to, to at, at, at those times, what we would consider right African, directly African people. But from there, I mean, think about that to your point. From there, from this limited version of Christianity, Black people built a faith that helped them endure their way to freedom. That is why and how I am able to be a Christian. We that found is, ways yeah. to have children. We found ways to have joy. We found ways to make our own recipes. We found ways to, to create an identity that we could hold on to, that became ours, that was something that we could anchor ourselves in, even at the most horrific treatment that has other than the, the way that indigenous people were completely executed. Like yeah. that has happened in this country and in, in this um, space. So, and Christianity is one of those things, not the only, but one of those things. <clears throat> so we don't have a white oh, person. Girl, space. I'm just that, like, that what? Ain't what we own. <laughs> <laughs> what? So, and, 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 and let me put it this way. Faith is not something that white people own, right? Christian faith is not something that white people own. We have a deep understanding of who God was before they ever stole us. What do you so think this that is, is something that I totally what is that reject. deep understanding? That, that, that we were created and a part of something. And not just created so that we could revel in ourselves, but that we were part of an ecology of creation. That's why from an African tradition, deeply ingrained about the relationship with nature as creation, the relationship with each other as creation, the relationship with animals as creation. Our ancestors did not see ourselves as separate and apart from these aspects. And that is something that we still hold and we still retain today. That's so interesting. I was just having this conversation around the overlap between Buddhism and Christianity and how Jesus always was with nature when he had like his deepest reflections. 
I just think everything you're saying right now is just so not a part of what we are hearing as like, just as the general public. I mean, I, I started going to church in college and it was that very sanitized Southern Baptist narrative. And they were great people. They were really good, mm -hmm. sweet people that I'm still in community with now, but I definitely did not hear about this liberation theology until I met you. And that is, I think, a part of why I stepped back from the step back from the church and step back from faith, especially because I had a lot of spiritual trauma wrapped mm -hmm. up in that. But it was because I I'm doing human rights work. And I was just like, why are we so committed and determined about homosexuality or whatever? Like there are people that need real true help. People are starving. People in your community are in abusive foster care homes. Like why do we give a shit about who we love? I just, that's when I was like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, there has created a hierarchy of, even if we use the language of sin, a hierarchy of sin. I do not, in my exegetical framework, consider these things to be sin, these different orientations of who you'd love. Uh, but in terms of like that general public knowledge, that creating even these hierarchies of sin, of what type of sin. And, I, and I'm just like, y'all, find some consistency somewhere. Because <laughs> just anywhere, can you be consistent somewhere? Because how? How do you have this deep abiding commitment to controlling a woman's body around creating life? And also you can send or be sent to war in a way that completely takes people's lives and vote for policies that you know, that you know support taking black lives, taking brown lives, not caring about lives if they don't have homes, not caring about lives if they love a life that looks like them. And that goes at this point for race and gender and uh, sexual orientation. And, and it's, it's ridiculous. And what it really comes down to is power, is power and not love. There is power in love, but this deep need to be in power, retain power, keep power, not share power is what is rooted in the way that Christianity shows up um, historically and currently. One thing that I love about your training that you do that again is so radical, you do civil disobedience training mm -hmm. in churches. Mm -hmm. Civil disobedience, how do you not have hate mail? I get a lot of pushback, but not necessarily the hate place. But the work that I do is hated. And I am doing it in a tradition of lots of people who were hated and who, who were maligned, prosecuted and arrested and all those kinds of things. But again, back to the, what do you, what do you think the whole like civil rights movement was? This yeah. was civil disobedience. Right. That's what yep. that was. Yep. And so it's not different for me. And the, so in Memphis, Tennessee, where I moved from, the reason uh, MLK was in Memphis was to support the sanitation workers who were striking because um, their fellow workers were, were like killed in the back of a sanitation truck. And they were black folks, black workers had to ride in the garbage truck and white folks were able to drive the truck in the air condition. Those were the conditions. So there was a malfunction in the truck and the black workers were crushed like the garbage. 
in the back of the truck. That is why they were striking. That was the, the impetus for the organized aspect of the strike. See how that history is not, is not shared and not taught? That's why there, was a, there were Black lives lost. And so those workers striked to say, our Black lives matter as workers. That's what that was. This was civil disobedience for that reason. So that organizing was out of Claiborne Temple. Now, what was the last word on that? Temple. Claiborne Temple is still in existence right now, deep place of community and still organizing and liberation is led by, by an executive director, first black woman, Anasa Troutman. Like, we are not new. Everything that we are doing, we might have new language for it. There might be new faces doing it, but it's not new. This is the same work on a different day for a different iteration of liberation struggle. That's it. So if the whole world can understand this sanitation worker strike that happened out of a temple, then you can get with civil disobedience training that's happening out of a church. You have talked a lot about how the church can be active in these narratives. And I have been thinking through how if the black community was acting the same way as the white community is, that hate that's coming out of the white evangelical community. We just had a few shootings recently. A young white man shot um, black, Mad black Lives Matters protesters and just the way he was treated was completely different. Drastically has, different. It has made me think if the black community had shown up with that kind of hate and violence, they would be shot like they would be, I mean, just mowed down. There's no way that they could show up like that. Correct. You, you talk about how to engage these community groups to be able to show up in a way that, I mean, because the standards are different for white people versus black people. We don't get the same freedom that, I mean, per, a person of color, we don't get that same freedom. Correct. And the Black Panther Party is an example of this. And this wasn't a group that was coming out of hate. This was a group that was coming out of self-defense and uplifting of community, of this collective power. So they're out here organizing how everybody get diapers and food and have personal security and safety and what that looks like to be safe in a Black body. And they were arrested and murdered and maligned in every way and declared enemies of the state off gate, right? And so, but white nationalists are taking over federal parks, hunkering down, waiting on the civil war to take two and all of this, and it's being allowed both in action and in policy. And so we don't even have a direct, you know, apples to apples comparison, because we, we don't even have a space that black folks are just showing up out of hate. We're showing up out of disruption, out of we are not going to take this anymore, out of not one more life shall be taken, out of we can't breathe, out of our hands are up, out of we were just sleeping on the couch in the, in the room at the college, out of we were just walking down the street, out of all of these places. So what does that look like to just honor Black life is what is being asked. Part of your question was concrete things that faith communities can do. And, and the first go-to, I know, is to learn more, to read more, to do better. That's one of my things. But not to get stuck there, because there's going to be discomfort in the reading, and, and, and we're not going to get free from a book club only. So we need there to be activation while you read as you study. 
one of your theories that you talk about is the Care Bear theory. It's my face. <laughs> when it comes to this activation part, what on earth, Care Bears? Thank you. I've, I don't think I've shared this anywhere. So I know, like, who's like Care Bears? Because I mean, I, I love will it. go. I'll go before a militarized police, but in my, it, I got a Care Bear spirit. So you think about the Care Bears and how each one of them had some form of energy on their belly. And this is who they were designed, divinely designed to be. This is how they showed up in the world. So it was whether it was the moon, the stars, happiness, joy, whatever it was, this was their Care Bear energy. And whenever they had to face evil, it, it wasn't enough if they went one-on-one -on -one against the evil. I remember all of the cartoons from my childhood and they would stand in a circle and just think about that, that image of an unbroken circle of heartbeats together with yeah. the same purposing coming together in this circular and, and you get in biblical just surrounding evil on every side. That's Bible. And they, from their purposing, from their belly, and then there was a leader. Somebody said, and, it, and it, it was never the same person every time. That's the other thing. So it wasn't this one savior person, but there was a different leader every time that would say, Care Bears, stare. And each one emitted the energy, their, their purposing from their belly. And together, they vanquished evil that way. And that is one of my changes of, that's my, uh, one of my theories of social change bring who you are who you are divinely created to be and do it in collection and collective and connection with other people and with that collective power with that collective energy with that collective purposing with that collective goal we will vanquish this evil cam girl <laughs> <laughs> wow oh my gosh I think people are tired. I think people are. are tired. And something else you talk about a lot is collective trauma and collective grief. And I hear you and I'm so stoked. I'm like, yes, I want to just get up on and get out there. And right now we're talking over, over Zoom. I am sitting here in my New York City apartment. The window is to my left. And you know, as I hear you say that, I'm like, yes, yes, yes. I'm, I'm making eye contact with you. And then I'm like, oh, but... There's this world out there. How do you carry that sort of Care Bear power outside of your house or outside of the screen that you're staring at when we're looking and consuming all this news and all this trauma? Like we have to know about what's happening, but then we get paralyzed. How do you keep going? The keep going, uh, the keep going place is also still found in community. I preached a couple of weeks ago. I talked about that our, our, our ancestors have the answer. So even for you, who are your ancestors? Who are the people who struggled, who celebrated? How did they do that? Because every generation has faced a great trial a great, like something that they have gone through. So what did your ancestors go through? How did they still found joy? How did you still get here? What did their going down look like? What did their getting up look like? And it is in that framework that we are able to do the same thing. We're just doing it in real time right now. And yes, we hold their trauma in our bodies, but we also hold their joy. We also hold their resilience. If trauma can be generational, so can joy. 
so can resilience, so can love, so can peace. And I'm not talking about passive peace. I'm talking about some disruptive peace. I'm talking about coalitions of peace out here, right? So all of that can be passed down. That means it's in you. I mean, Kendrick Lamar, the great, also the great prophet, right? He said it's in your DNA. It's already in there. So how do we tap into some of that? How do we tap into what our current generation has made available for us? And there is deep healing in community. There is deep holding in community. There are sacred places that can be made to hold you and house you until you can get back up again, until you can go again, until your tomorrow comes. When you talk about those healing places and community, you know, we're having this conversation around faith in church and talk to me about mental health stigma, healing in the church. I mean, is that real? Like healing in the church? Cause I have found in my personal journey, I'll speak for myself, mm-hmm. you know, and there was a point where I was getting seizure activity and I was going to a conservative church and they were like, um, that's the enemy. That's it's the devil. That's, that's the devil. So how, how are people, people like, I, Chai, I, that's your, that's your nervous system, right? That's, that's your I'm brain. Saying. That's your brain function. That's not, that's, that's what I'm like, saying. That's part of your yeah. mission. You have two masters, one in counseling, one in theology. How, mm-hmm. how do you see that? How do you see that path coming together? So a couple of ways, uh, spoke at, a as a keynote a couple years back at a the state of mental health and the black church so speaking out of my tradition and one of the things i named in that was that we are committing spiritual malpractice in our pulpits and and in our churches uh, and, and even in our faith bodies and that spiritual malpractice is a preaching and a teaching that frames mental health mental and emotional wellness as a weakness or as an absence of faith or always as an attack of the enemy wherein it's actually a human condition so if you can acknowledge that you are created that you were divinely created as a human that means you can get a headache that means you can break your foot that means you can be injured that means that you can be hurt but that also means that areas of your body can go through things seen and unseen and mental right. and emotional wellness is one of those places and even biblically scriptures talk about that god sees the inside and we see the outside so while we out here trying to play god just because you can't see a neurotransmitter doesn't mean that there's not an issue with a neurotransmitter just because you can't see my nervous system doesn't mean that i don't have a nervous system that needs and deserves support and that is the deal that is the deal and then i think also that stigma has to be acknowledged as being a value judgment that by putting the stigma on this you are saying that there is something about this that you don't deserve healing here you've done something that makes healing necessary that's the value judgment that's the unspoken value judgment in old testament the disciples said to jesus when someone came for healing who sinned them or their parents they were looking for the fault place they were looking for where the blame was because their needing healing meant that they weren't whole and they saw sin as a as a not being whole place and jesus was like nobody they need healing. So I'm going to touch them. I'm going to dig in the dirt. I'm going to spit in their eye. I'm going to do all the ways that I showed up and healed in the world. And was teaching the disciples. And it's also teaching us. Healing is available. And it doesn't have to be an absence of faith. Faith is actually a part of your healing. Metrics, studies, 
all the things that white people like, you know, numbers and all the things. Listen, these, you know, studies that cost more than actually just going and caring for the person. They have shown that cancer patients and different folks who battle all different types of human conditions, that they have better results, more wellness results when there is faith as a part of their matrix. And it doesn't mean that that's still not a judgment. So it doesn't mean if you're atheist, listen, ain't nobody judging how you heal from cancer. That's ridiculous. Like we got to let that go. We are humans created by the divine, not the divine. And that's it. So if you can have a human condition, mental health is one of those. That's it. One thing that you said about your mom is that she is beauty lived out loud. And Mm. I know beauty is a big part of the work that you do, which, you know, again, is that oxymoron because you are such a fighter. But beauty is that softness that Mm -hmm. you bring to it. And one of your quotes was, how do you still find beauty? Um, How do you create it, not just both externally, but also how do you find beauty within yourself? How do you create beauty internally? as well, even when the world isn't fair, even when the world isn't right. Mm -hmm. Because just because the world wants to be ugly, and I don't mean ugly in like, you must be blonde, blue haired Barbie, right? Like this is not the framework of ugliness, but I just mean an absence of that, the the beauty of love, the beauty, the beauty of harmony, the beauty of, of positive energy, it's still available. Part of it is just not believing. not believing everything that the world wants to give you and hand to you. There is beauty available. There is liberation available. There is peace available. There is dignity available. There is ability to live your black, brown life full of joy out loud in the world. All of these things are available, but we have to reach for it. We have to believe that is there and we have to tap into it even when everything in front of us says otherwise period. And my mom is one of those. She is just like walking, breathing beauty and love. And I just don't understand (laughs) how she is able to do that. But she, she was really my first theologian. She was my first reflection of God in my life. I, I can't remember if I said this to you, but when I learned of the type of love that Baha'is taught, that comes from the divine. When I learned of the type of love that Jesus offered, when I learned of the type of love that God is love in a Christian faith context, I said, oh, I can recognize that because my mother had already embodied that in my life. So this was not a new presentation. experience. So just imagine if we all could be Violet for somebody in the world, my mother's name is Violet, what would happen if the love we radiated was so beautiful and bright and enveloping that when somebody else told us about a love that is available, we recognized it, not just believed it. I'm an only child, initially raised a single parent. I have an amazing stepdad now that I call D-Dad because he's my dad. Uh, and his name is Daryl, so I call him D-Dad. Uh, but I am one of those only children who love everybody. Like, my house was where all the sleepovers were going to be. My mom is the everybody's mom. I share her 
just very liberally because I'm very confident. Like, again, unlike this westernized concept that we got to keep all the things ourselves and there's not enough, I'm totally secure and wonderful and, and blanketed in this love that I know is unique and beautiful for my mom. And I want everybody to have that. And radical um, hospitality is a real thing. How do you create an environment where people are welcome, feel welcome, and there is welcome available? That's, that's the radical hospitality. What would you say to people who have not had that be poured into them? You know, there's that saying, mm -hmm. you, can't, you can't be what you can't see. You can't give what you don't have. I hear mm -hmm. you talking about all this love and I can see energy that comes from you. And I just want to go out there and do it myself. But, you know, I grew up in a house that didn't have that. And there yeah. are people who, so many people have not had that. I know I don't just speak for myself. I'm sure there are listeners out there who feel the same. We want that energy we don't have that fertile ground. How on earth do we, how do we get there? Yeah. And that is an emotional place for me because I recognize the deep privilege that I have to have been raised in a way that I can lean on and go back to and was a healthy part of my formation. So I understand that that is not and wasn't available for everyone. And I go back to what is available. Even if it was not available yesterday, it is available. And so what do we look like to reach for that if we are able to remove ourselves from an environment where we are not honored, where we are not loved? You, whoever is listening, you, you, all the use, y'all, all the heartbeats, you have great agency available to you. Exercise your agency to remove yourself from places where you are not honored, where you are not loved, where you are not nurtured, where you are not watered. So you talk about that fertile ground, treat yourself like you are a plant, bloom where you are planted. Listen, plants reach for the light reach for the light. They can get too big and their roots need to grow out and they need a different pot. So what different pot is available to you? Who can help you be repotted? It takes someone else to do that. The plant can't get up and go get a pot. So who can repot you? Who can be part of your community? Who is water for you? Who is light for you? What does that look like for you? If your ground ain't fertile, where is fertile ground? and who will support you getting there. The other beautiful aspect of my mom is she did get me this life plant when I was born. So I, I speak in plant metaphors a lot. And my plant will turn 42 with me on December. It is still alive. It's thriving in my home right now. And she will still call me and ask me, how's your light? Are you getting enough light, Bahisha? Are you getting enough water? today? What's your, what's your soil look like? What's your environment look like? And I think these are questions we need to ask ourselves. When people have neglected your plant, when people have made it impossible for light to hit you, when you are not fed, when you are not nourished, none of those things is the plant's fault. But there is deep agency in your rootedness and groundedness and your ability to yet live. You still breathing right now? it's available. Healing is available. Life and love are available. It is not too late. Oh my goodness. Um, I just want to cry. Um, I want to cry with you. I'm I so know, great. People. 
I just, I, I want people to love themselves. I want people to know that there is already love in themselves. Again, back to what's available and how to tap into that, how to lean into that, even when people have hurt them greatly, even when people have maligned them greatly, even when people have physically violated them, when people have not honored them, and when people have not lifted them up in the Lion King way that, you know, at birth or even at the 10th year, at the 20th year, at the 68th year, did not lift you up to the heavens and declare that you were purposed and powerful and beautiful and loved. And I say to you that you are, that you absolutely are. And if it is not by somebody around you, then listen, I, I love you. And even if that has to be the starting place, let some girls go from there. Get some, some light on that love. <sighs> you are deeply loved. Love is available. Dead. I'm going I'm to cry with you. I'm going to just I'm cry dead. with you. I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> Woo. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. Um. Um, what, what are you learning right now? Ooh, I am actually learning how to be repotted. So that's interesting. I'm, I picked up my roots and moved them to Nashville. I've been here for a month. I'm in a new school, in a new place, with a new purpose, with a new role. I am um, divorced several years back. I am figuring out how to find love again, how to be loved again, how to be a part of love again. I am navigating the love and light that's available in resistance community and liberation communities that just, we will not, we will not stop until this freedom actually flows down like a mighty stream. That's, that's where we are. And we will not take anything less than that. And I lean into that every day. I lean into how to tear down systems that oppress and how to also build up. But that's also in our bodies. Are we oppressing ourselves? What messages, what are we saying to ourselves? What are we saying to others? How are we part of oppressing? This is where I am all the time. <laughs> and I sit in these amazing circles of, of Black women who love me. And I'm talking about in so many spaces, so weird. Like I got like a, a group on Facebook that's like, we gonna love each other. And then I got a group of text messages and we gonna love each other. And then I got, you know, like people are like, we are gonna love each I other. I wanna be in on that text message. You need I'm to be I'm just inviting myself in. into your house. Um, Come through. Come through. This <laughs> on is your what text I'm saying. messages. And, and not just and not just black women, but that's my foundational base. And and even from there, just the love that people in community has shown when I cannot move. Yeah. If I if I can just say to someone that loves me, I can't move. They move until I can. They hold me until I can. They will sit there with me in that place, encourage me. Um, support me, show up for me. And then I do the same in this beautiful reciprocal way, not in an owing, but in an honoring. And that is what I'm sitting in. I am deeply loved and I know that, but I also give love deeply, even when people hurt me, even when they hurt other people. Love is still available because their way is not the way. Love is the way.
And I will not let them change my motivator. I will not let them change my reason for resisting. I will not. Who are you? Just like, I just want to, can I just put it in my pocket? Just, <laughs> how are you so amazing? Um, lots of people, lots of people did this. I was formed by so many people. I would, it would take three books just to tell you not about me, but about the people I want that the poured into me. About the people, but I also want to see your books. And I know that you have them. I have books. Yes. How can people get in touch with you? How can we just absorb all your wisdom and your light and your love? Where can we find you? All the things. So the majority of my things are housed on movement and faith. That is the, 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 the um, parachurch ministry, if you will, that I lead. And that's on www.movementinfaith.com. It's singular. And then also I'm a core team of Track for Movements. This is trauma response and crisis care for movements. So this is in movement spaces. So people who are healers and practitioners of healing and want to do that for a community that's resisting. And that's the same, um, www.tracc for movements, plural, .com. And my books are available on there. So far, I've published, uh, co-edited with an amazing uh, liberator out of Oakland, California, three volumes, three editions of Recipicence. Got to wrap your mind around that word. We'll talk about that later. But Recipicence, it means, it means a change of mind and heart, a return to sound doctrine. And it sounds like, beloved, that this is totally what you need in your life. But... <laughs> But it's called, so it's Recipicence, a Lenten devotional for dismantling white supremacy. And it is an, an intentional exegetical deep dive um, in, into how we look at our sacred texts. But we don't, I don't do this alone. What I do is in community. So I got all my peeps from all over the country and about 40 plus people wrote for every day of Lent coming from their perspective, their lived experience out of their brown body, out of their black body, out of their white bodysuit. And how, how are these texts used to oppress? But how can these, these same texts be used to liberate? Because it is in the container that the power is found. I, I am so happy that you joined us. I am just floored by who you are and your spirit. And I love you. adore you. Adore you. I'm Jessica Minhas, and thanks for joining us on I'll Go First. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our mission is to uplift and support you in your journey of healing. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, comment, and share. And if there's a topic you'd like us to dive deeper into or would like to share your story with us, we are available on all major platforms at I'll Go First and www.allgofirst.com. We'll see you next time.